You're listening to the Happy as a Mother podcast. This week, I am so excited to welcome Dr. Nicole Leistakow to the show. Dr. Nicole is a reproductive psychiatrist and a clinical assistant professor at the University of Maryland. She has written about women's mental health for textbooks, scientific journals, and on her private practice blog, but I found her through one of her journals about protecting maternal sleep. I really loved her article on prescribing sleep for postpartum depression, so much so that our free resource and download, A Plan for Maternal Sleep, Protecting Your Sleep in the Postpartum Period, was based off of her journal and article that was written. I've invited her on the show today to help us unpack why sleep is so important when it comes to helping manage anxiety and depression. What type of sleep is important? Are we going for a few hours here? Are we trying to get a solid eight hours? Anybody who has a newborn feels like that's entirely unrealistic. And what our beliefs have to do with getting up during the night and taking on night feedings and whether we need to adjust these beliefs or not. We talk about some really creative ways to incorporate support not just partners, but others in our community if we are solo or single parents. And best of all, you can pair this episode with our free sleep resource, a free download that will help you to protect mom's sleep in the postpartum period. You do not want to miss this amazing conversation with Dr. Nicole. Before jumping in, I just wanted to let you know that we are being featured on the podcast page of Amazon Music all week. And I encourage you to keep an eye on my Instagram page for something really exciting happening. And I'm going to share all the behind the scenes. You can stream the Happiest Mother podcast on Amazon Music. Do you ever feel like your mind is betraying you? Scary thoughts can pop into our heads out of nowhere. It can be disturbing, frightening, and make you question your own desires and urges. They can leave you assuming the worst, avoiding certain parenting situations, or attempting to control everything to do with your child out of fear. These scary thoughts, also known as intrusive thoughts, can be very concerning, but they are actually completely normal. In fact, some studies show that close to 100% of moms experience scary thoughts. And yet this is something nobody prepares us for. We're left to struggle with these thoughts on our own. The good news is that when you know what to do when a scary thought pops up, you can ditch the fear, find peace of mind, and trust yourself again. Dr. Reem, Psyched Mummy, and I created When Your Thoughts Become Scary, a workshop to help you learn the skills to navigate intrusive thoughts before they take over. You'll learn how to understand scary thoughts and why you're having them, know what to do when a scary thought pops up, and find peace of mind and regain trust in yourself again. Join us for the live workshop on October 20th at 1 p.m. Eastern or 10 a.m. Pacific. If you can't make it live, no problem. You'll get lifetime access to the recording so you can watch it at your own pace and revisit the workshop whenever you need. It's time to take control of your thoughts instead of letting them control you. Head to happyasamother.co slash scary thoughts to learn more and register today. That's happyasamother.co slash scary thoughts. Welcome to the Happy as a Mother podcast, where we're dedicated to helping you cope with the load of motherhood. I'm your host and registered psychotherapist, Erica Jossa. We all had expectations going into motherhood, but reality often has a different plan. Let's work together in shattering unrealistic expectations, letting go of shame and guilt, 
and accepting where we are on our motherhood journey. We'll pack a toolbox for motherhood with expert advice, practical tips, relatable stories, real moments, and honest conversations. My goal is to give you the knowledge, tools, and resources you need to parent more freely. However, this podcast should not replace the advice of your healthcare provider. It's time to do motherhood differently, toss out the idea of perfect, and enjoy the journey. Let's dive in. Dr. Nicole, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. I've been back and forth with you on the edge of my seat trying to book this in because of a study that you've been working on and releasing in the area of sleep. I'm so excited to have you here with us. Thank you for joining. Thanks so much for having me. This is such a great topic to talk about. I'm always so curious how people find their way into their niche and specialty because maternal mental health and the perinatal period is not something often that we set our sights on originally when we start our schooling, right? And we find our way into it usually with a pretty interesting or meaningful story. So I'm curious how you got into this area of like reproductive psychiatry and mental health Mm -hmm. and doing the research that you do. Yeah. So I actually am a second career physician and second career psychiatrist. I was a high school English teacher before I ever turned to medicine. And I think that's part of what informs my love of reproductive psychiatry because there's so much teaching to be done. There's so much discussion to have in educating other providers, other physicians, therapists, and of course, families and moms themselves. So this is a newer field that's been growing in the last you know, 20 years, as you know, and we have so much more great data than we used to have that it's a really exciting time to be a reproductive psychiatrist and to be able to bring that teaching to people. And then how I turned towards women's mental health specifically was that when I was at Johns Hopkins finishing my residency, I had some really great teachers. Dr. Jennifer Payne and Dr. Lauren Osborne were training us in a women's mood disorders clinic. And that exposure, which was just knowledge and learning that I didn't have anywhere else in my training was really compelling to me and helped me realize that I could really take what was becoming a passion for women's mental health and teaching and and that that could be my sole focus, which it now is in my practice. I find it so interesting to find the right mentorship to stumble your way into an area that you're really passionate about an emerging area of science and research that you're able to contribute to. I've seen in your publications and the sleep study that we're here to discuss today, which I'm excited about. So in terms of your current research and this sleep study, how did that come about? How did you explore or get the idea for doing that piece of research? Well, so I think the piece that you're talking about is really more of a clinical commentary. So It's not necessarily doing my own research, but it's kind of looking at the literature and looking at a very interesting study that was done around brexanolone and bringing together my clinical experience with the data from that study and from other studies to write this commentary about what I think is really missing when we talk about treating postpartum depression or preventing postpartum depression, which Mm -hmm. is that mystery ingredient sleep. Yes. 
And so I want to give full credit to the people on the ground doing the studies. What I did with my colleagues is we really took a topic that I felt super passionate about, which is changing the conversation on postpartum sleep and then looking at what data do we have to support this and bringing in the work of original research that other people had done. Mm-hmm. Can you give us a little bit of a walkthrough of that research that you were looking at? Because there was a study done where moms came in for this, I believe it was three-day treatment in the hospital for postpartum depression, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So this is a really interesting study, the first of its kind, which resulted in a new, the only medicine, Rexanolone, approved for postpartum depression specifically. Mm -hmm. And this was based on decades of slow, careful, methodical bench research where they arrived at this novel therapeutic, which is a derivative of a hormone compound, Mm. which is now Brexanolone. And what they did in this study is they took moms specifically in the first six months postpartum and brought them in for an IV infusion. Mm. So in the six months postpartum with severe depression, and that depression was measured by these clinical scales, including the Hamilton rating scale. So they gave them this IV infusion that they thought would work based on their prior research, and they got amazing results. So they did this infusion, and within 60 hours, women's symptoms had just melted away. And so, of course, I was really intrigued by this study, as was everyone in the field. Mm -hmm. But when I looked closer, I was really interested actually in what happened in the placebo arm. Mm -hmm. So the placebo arm also got an infusion. They also came into the hospital and had the same experience where everyone basically had to be separated from their infant because remember they've delivered within the last six months. Mm -hmm. So they're away from their infant. They have to stop breastfeeding for seven days because they don't know whether they're getting the active drug or, you know, like a saline mix in their IV bag. And the placebo arm, which again, remember, they didn't know, you know, who was who, yeah, no one knew what they were getting. The placebo arm also had amazing results within two to three days. And then fascinatingly for both arms, that response that they had both to the Brexanolone and to placebo was durable. So, you know, I don't want to minimize Brexanolone because the fact that it outperformed placebo with Mm -hmm. such a, a strong placebo response is impressive. Mm -hmm. But what I was interested in is why did the women who didn't get this really interesting new compound that I think is important, why did those women also have a response and also have a lasting response? Mm -hmm. And so that kind of kicked off a little bit of exploration where I started asking the question, could the explanation in part be that something changed about sleep? Because you think about what has changed for them and they're taken out of this like pressure cooker of new motherhood and the sleep deprivation and the demands on them physically and emotionally put into like a little solstice, like three day, you know, retreat. It's not that glamorous, I'm sure, but like where they can sleep and recover from whether it's labor, delivery, Mm -hmm. traumatic birth, potentially 
navigating feeding challenges, all of that, and are able to get some restorative rest. And that seemed to move the needle for the moms involved. Absolutely. And, you know, you can't join this type of study without really marshalling a lot of family resources. So, you know, these were families really as a whole who took the mom's postpartum depression really seriously Hmm. to the point that we said, you know, we need to take some action. We need to support her in going into the hospital. We need to find someone else to take care of the baby. We need to figure out what we're going to do without that active component of breastfeeding. Mothers could still pump and dump. So I don't know if the researchers have data, but my guess is that we don't have data about how women manage that, whether they pumped and dumped and then picked up breastfeeding afterwards. You know, that could have been an option for many women. But basically, Mm -hmm. the family had to figure out, we have to take care of this infant in the absence of the mom for, you know, three days during the hospital stay. But then, you know, one question is, is did those newfound skills where everybody rose to the occasion and they took over night feedings, did those newfound skills then carry over to when the mom came out of the hospital and went back into her life? You know, was the family more capable and more aware and more supportive going forward? Mm -hmm. We need that data. We need that study about how having this family support can influence the course of postpartum depression. Mm-hmm. And as you reviewed this study and the other like literature surrounding it, you came up with some really core recommendations around sleep to help prevent or alleviate an aid in the treatment of postpartum depression. And I find them fascinating. And so I'd love if we can go through them a little bit, some of the recommendations that you had had and that came out of that research or that going through the literature. Yeah. So this was a combination of these kind of four core principles that I talk about really came out of my clinical experience running a perinatal clinic at University of Maryland and just what I was finding again and again as I started doing this counseling, as I started asking in particular about sleep, it really became apparent to me quickly that it wasn't enough to say, oh, I think you need to get more sleep, go do that, and then come back and let's talk. It really needed to be a whole exploration of what was happening during sleep for that particular mom in front of me. But then Mm -hmm. I came up with these kind of four principles that I think are helpful to start to make a change. Because again, I think one of the reasons we haven't addressed this, which is it's kind of such, on one hand, it's such an obvious thing to address. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we know that sleep has a huge effect size on the brain. We know that we can deprive people of one night of sleep, a mere eight hours, and that people can start to feel delirious and act drunk and make decisions they wouldn't normally make. Sleep just has such a huge effect size on the brain, but the assumption for so long has been, you just delivered a baby. You know, forget about sleep. (laughs) Right. Everybody shrugs and no one says, if sleep is so important for the brain, why can't we do anything to support Hmm. you moms who have infants? Yeah. So these four principles kind of came out of lots of conversations. And the first principle is really this changing the message. 
of one, and and I know you've talked about this as well, mm-hmm. that being a good mother does not mean sacrificing yourself until there's nothing left for the sake of your mm-hmm. child or for the sake of your family, but that being a good mom means conserving yourself as a resource and really taking care of yourself because you are so important. <laughs> your baby can't do it without you. Your family can't do it without you. And we have to protect you so that you're available for this marathon, you know, that is the postpartum. Mm -hmm. We can't use you up in a quick sprint and then, you know, be left without you. We have to conserve you as a resource. So that's step number one is really changing that. Yeah. Yeah. It makes me think about the messaging around sleep and who is centered and, Mm -hmm. and the messages from society that we get. Because like intensive mothering tells us to mother at an absolute cost mm. of ourselves and our well-being, right? So whether that's in regards to sleep, whether that's in regards to our schedule and our time, our resources, all of the areas we feel pressure to give of ourselves, even at a cost of our well-being. Yeah. And I think that what happens is when we get feeling like run down, we try to get sleep in ways that are not actually things that are within our control a lot of the time. So we focus on things like sleep training Mm -hmm. or our baby's sleep because we're so desperate to get sleep Mm -hmm. that we try to control, you know, and tweak the environment and things around because it feels selfish or we haven't been told it's okay for us to just actually create a plan for our own sleep, Mm -hmm. right? And so I think that there's a real like baby's sleep is centered and baby's care is centered and mom's sleep is like, oh, it's just, it's at a cost and Mm -hmm. that is what it is. And even if it costs your well-being and your mental health, this is what you signed up for. And moms are like, is this what I'm supposed to be doing? Absolutely. And that's where I would love if we can start to change the conversation where we can see the family as an ecosystem And where we can look at partners and family members and even things like night doulas, you know, uncles, aunts, whoever is around, but where we can start to say, you know, this is enough of a societal priority that it's okay to start asking and looking and saying, wait a second, it doesn't make sense to put all of this load for interrupted sleep on one person who's like the most important person that we need to keep functional. Mm, mm -hmm. So what's really been missing from the conversation, I think, is certainly dads, partners, other members of the household who are working perhaps, but who have really sort of had their sleep either prioritized because we're thinking they're leaving the house, they're earning the paycheck, they can't be disturbed overnight, or we've thought they can't do it they won't be able to wake Mm. up or they don't know how to take care of the baby in the middle of the night. So the first principle is focus on self-care over self-sacrifice. And the second principle is to consolidate these chunks of sleep, which we can talk about more why those are important. But the third principle is to expand the workforce because it doesn't have to be a choice between mom's sleep or like ignoring the baby. We can expand the ecosystem that we're looking at and saying, you know, is there someone around that we can ask to take over one night feeding? 
Or can we think about how we're structuring this? Can we talk to the individual family about what's going on? Can we think about how we're structuring the night so that someone could pitch in and that could make a huge difference? The difference between waking up every two hours or every two and a half hours and getting one four to five hour chunk of sleep and then waking up every two and a half hours, it's a big material difference to the brain. Mm -hmm. The brain really sees that as different. And that's where I also think a lot of the dialogue has really not addressed this issue of sleep fragmentation because people have always said, nap when your baby naps, you know, and there's kind of this attitude of, well, if women get a total of eight hours that, you know, shouldn't that be okay? But Mm. everyone knows, you know, I tell my patients, if I give you eight hours to sleep and I wake you up every hour on the hour, you're going to feel devastated the next day. You're not going to be able to function. Whereas if I give you eight hours and I wake you up once after four to five hours, and then you get another two to three hours, that's such a difference. Mm -hmm. So it's really more about consolidating chunks of sleep and resisting this sleep fragmentation that happens when we rely on one person to cover an infant's feeding schedule overnight Mm -hmm. that I think can really move the dial for women and really change the suffering that's happening with postpartum depression. It makes me reflect on my postpartum experience and not everybody has access to supports. In my case, I actually did. I had my partner, my mother-in-law came over from Benin, West Africa to stay with us for like two to three months after each baby. Mm. And yet, because of the messaging and the beliefs that I had about how this was my role and my responsibility, there was an unwillingness on my part to allow anybody else to do it. And that perfectionism mixed with societal pressures mixed with all these things kind of became a perfect storm in a sense because you can only keep a pace of that intensity for so long before your body and your brain are like no no thank you this isn't gonna work for us (laughs) you know and then you're forced to recalibrate and figure it out because you're in burnout or you're in postpartum depression and anxiety Or, you know, moms are having intrusive thoughts and daydreaming about leaving because motherhood is too all-consuming. And so I think it's so important, even just that permission piece to say, okay, you know, I'm allowed to prioritize my sleep. Like, that's the first step. Now, what does that look like for me? And what I'm hearing from you is that it doesn't look like every night. It doesn't look like an entire night's sleep. We're going to start with something that's realistic And we're going to aim for like a four to five hour chunk of time, at least once a week if you're not getting it, ideally more, but we have to start somewhere. Absolutely. And I try to see if patients can go further beyond giving them self-permission, but to see it as like, this is actually part of being a good mother is Mm. protecting your brain and giving it what it needs so that you can function the way you want to function. One of the most tragic things for me is if someone feels like they have to limp through this postpartum period, they have to accept high anxiety or they have to accept terrible feelings of depression and they don't get to enjoy their newborn. Mm -hmm. They don't get to enjoy this incredible infant that they're getting to know and, and learning because the symptoms really get in the way. And I think a lot of people feel like, you know, 
I just have to get through this. But we don't have to accept that. We don't have to accept that that's the best it can be. And one of the things I really love about working in women's mental health is being able to restore that ability to enjoy the postpartum period. And so I really do focus on, look, if your brain isn't getting the restorative sleep it needs, that is often the first step. That is often where we should really focus. Mm-hmm. And so I often start out by asking people their specific schedule and asking about if there is a partner or someone else in the house, asking about the family member's schedule and then picking, is there one feeding where if we could remove this feeding by having the partner step in or the mother-in-law step in or you know the sister brother whoever step in if we could have someone step in for that one feeding does that mean that you now would get a 4 to 5 hour chunk mm. and when we find that space then i say okay let's talk brass tacks here how could we make this happen mm-hmm. and it's not easy for families because then they have to talk to someone else and they have to say you know would you be willing to do this and if you are willing to do this how do we do it do we pump breast milk do we use a little bit of formula you know there's a lot of practicalities to it and so i really do actually spend that time with patients getting down to brass tacks and ideally it can become for many families kind of a new schedule. And of course the baby doesn't stick to the schedule, Mm -hmm. but what I really recommend is sort of these sleep shifts where the mom, if she's able to fall asleep early, maybe she goes to bed as soon as possible, like let's say 8 PM, 9 PM, if her body's able to sleep. And then, you know, the baby's maybe gone to sleep and is going to wake up at let's say 11 or at midnight for that first feeding. And could someone else take that first shift? Hmm. So I'm, I'm often recommending, could someone else sleep in the room with the baby while the mom sleeps in a different protected room where she can't hear the baby crying for that first feeding? Could she sleep in a different room where she gets protected sleep? Someone else takes that first shift. They stay with the baby. They're responsive to everything that the baby needs during that first time. And they do that first feeding. And then after that first feeding is over, you know, can they then come into the room where the mom's sleeping and leave a door ajar or turn on a monitor so that then for the next feeding, let's say the first feeding happened at 11 and mom was able to sleep through it, someone else took care of it. And then let's say the next feeding happens around two or three in the morning, then ideally she could hear that next feeding. And if she's gone to sleep at eight, and she's allowed to sleep until 2 a.m. because someone did one night feeding, Mm -hmm. that can just be such a game changer for women at that stage. And then, you know, she might be perfectly fine waking up the rest of the night every two hours to do all the rest of the feedings. And then the trick of this is that also the partner or the mother-in-law or whoever did that midnight feeding And then that person is allowed to go to bed and they can get then that protected sleep that they need to function. We're not just suggesting like switch the cost and have someone else be terribly sleep deprived, but we're saying if we work together, then at least two people in the household can have a protected chunk of sleep plus some interrupted sleep. And that can get a whole family through the postpartum period without anyone suffering a major depression or 
you know, a terrible disabling flare of anxiety or intrusive thoughts, Mm -hmm. as you say, all of which can get in the way of bonding with your baby and enjoying your baby. Mm-hmm. You know, I, w- I don't want to say motherhood is all like rainbows and butterflies, but I do want people to be able to enjoy the moments that are enjoyable. Mm-hmm. And anxiety and depression get in the way. And sleep deprivation, if it's not addressed, prevents healing from those. Mm-hmm. And really flares them up, as you said, like if we are prone to them or if we've experienced them in the past or if there's mm-hmm. maybe an undercurrent of that in our personality, we run a little, you know, revved up and then we throw in some sleep deprivation over the course of weeks and months really teeters that over to be more severe. I'm reflecting as you're talking about this like shift taking and I remember with our firstborn I've got three boys and mm. by the third you're like ah we got this figured out mostly <laughs> but um with the first one both my husband and I would be up like what do we do with this baby mm. right but you mm-hmm. call out the importance of like trying to protect each other's sleep by like the one person being up and switching on and off so you don't have two sleep deprived parents then trying to navigate their day Yes, I really do recommend protecting both people by coming up with a plan to do mm-hmm. to do shifts and switching off. And, you know, I tell people that if your partner's working outside of the house and you want to protect, you know, their ability to keep working, you know, if you're being woken up every two and a half hours, your ability to cope and work and be on in the way that ideally infants need you know, infants don't need just a diaper change. They need someone to change their diaper and feed them who's cooing to them and babbling to them and talking to them in the, in a nice voice. And that takes so much emotional energy. So I actually tell my patients that if you're the person staying home with the baby, that's actually so much harder than going to a job. <laughs> it's so much harder than going out to an office job or out to a physical job because you're supposed to be emotionally on mm. while you're doing all of these tasks where you know you have a baby who you have to take care of all of their needs and you have to be a total interpreter. You have to figure out what is it that they need. You have to try five different things. And if those don't work, you have to try them all again. Mm. It's actually a harder job sometimes than leaving the house. So it's not that I want the person leaving the house to go work to just be totally sleep deprived, but they can do that job if they get a five-hour chunk plus another two to three hours. They can sustain that. It's not ideal, but they can sustain that the Mm -hmm. same way. It's not ideal for the mom if she's staying home to not have a full eight hours. I would love to give her a full eight hours, but, you know, four to five hours plus another two to three hour chunk is sustainable. That can get you through the first six months of a baby's life. It's around six months that babies neurologically start to be able to sleep longer chunks. Mm. Some of us get luckier and babies at four months, you know, can do it. But reliably, this was one of the things I looked at in terms of the research and the literature, that babies under six months, we're trying so hard to get those babies under six months to just sleep longer Mm. because wouldn't that solve all of our problems without having to ask for help? Babies under six months, you can't reliably get them to do it. And, you know, that's neurologically appropriate. Right. They're developing. It's, you know, babies after six months where some of these behavioral interventions can be more effective. 
But based on the research I've looked at, it's not really appropriate to say, mom's not getting enough sleep, change the baby when the baby's less than six months. It's mom's not getting enough sleep. We have to look at the family. We have to look at the ecosystem. We have to look at the supports that she needs. And if she can't get those inside her household, you know, society needs to step up. Mm -hmm. It makes me think of creative ways that I've played this out with my partner because some of the objections I hear, and there are many that come up because this is woven into our identity in a way, right? So like there's a lot that we can come up against are like, my baby won't take a bottle or, you know, we don't have support or my partner, maybe something that they do for work is really high stakes or whatever. And there's been some creative ways that I've sort of seen some workarounds. And I'm sure you have too. And I'd love for us to hash a few out. My babies would not take a bottle despite my best efforts of trying. And that really obviously interfered because a nighttime feeds were dependent on me. Yeah. But we found a system actually where my husband would go get baby from their crib, bring them into me in my bed to nurse. Mm-hmm. I'd pretty much still be asleep. He'd there like wait for them to finish nursing. He would then take them back to their room, burp them, change them, resettle them so that the disturbance to my chunk of sleep was so minimal mm-hmm. that I kind of got to sleep you know, through that chunk without being awakened up and bouncing baby and all of that. Mm -hmm. So that worked for us really well. I've also seen moms who are either maybe single parents or Mm -hmm. solo parenting because partner is away, Mm -hmm. have somebody come and stay with them or even like spend a weekend together with another maybe single mom or solo mom so that they can do shift work with one another to Mm -hmm. alleviate some of that sleep deprivation. And that's really cool and interesting to see us support each other in that way. So there can be pockets of restorative rest. Absolutely. I think those are both great ideas. And I do try to talk to people about what is the nitty gritty of your experience? What are the obstacles that you see? Mm -hmm. And the primary obstacle is typically... I don't, I have to do it. Like it's, it's the expectation that we put on ourselves. That's usually the primary obstacle, but you're absolutely right that there are these other obstacles. Sometimes with babies that won't take a bottle, for example, I ask the question, like who's trying to give them the bottle? Babies know moms. If a mom is around and they smell the mom and they know she's there, you know, why take a bottle when you can have the breast? So Mm. oftentimes if the mom is not around and someone else is giving the bottle, like a father or like another relative or a caregiver, babies will do better taking bottles from those other people because they don't smell like mom and there's less expectation around breastfeeding. Mm -hmm. So I do try to get into the nitty gritty around like, can we address Of course, you know, if there's things like a lip tie or a tongue tie, you know, those need to be addressed and solo parenting, like solo parenting is very hard. But one thing that I find even with my um, single parents is that sometimes they're just so willing to be available for their baby that they're even doing things like checking on their baby when the baby's asleep. Hmm. making sure the baby's okay, even if the baby is not needing them at that moment. Sleeping right next to the baby in a way that the 
baby's normal breathing wakes them up or makes it Mm -hmm. hard for them to sleep. So even though if you're like solo parenting, you don't have the luxury of having a partner or a family member who lives with you. Although even if you're solo parenting, people are sometimes still, um, you know, mothers are so incredible. They take care of so many people. Sometimes people are solo parenting and then they are also taking care of, oh yeah, my little brother lives with us. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm taking care of my grandmother who lives with us. And sometimes even those, those younger family members who are adults can be pulled in to help. And I love your suggestion of teaming up with other solo parents to get help as well. But sometimes even my solo mothers aren't aware that it's actually part of taking care of their baby to not check Mm. when they don't need to, Mm -hmm. or to put the baby a little bit further away from them, or to use a white noise machine so they don't hear every little grunt, but that it is part of their job actually to get longer chunks of sleep if they can. Mm-hmm. I remember we had a co-sleeper attached to the side of the bed. Mm-hmm. Each of the boys stayed there for about like three or four months postpartum. Every little grunt <laughs> and move and wiggle and like little whine in their sleep, mm-hmm. right? Is It was so like, then I'm awake and I'm checking. Mm-hmm. Being able to create some distance or when we would move them to the crib or I would have the monitor, but I would keep it on the lowest Mm -hmm. sound instead of the highest sound so that a real cry came out or like a real disturbance before I was being alerted to it makes such a difference because if we are already prone to anxiety or experiencing a mood or anxiety disorder, like our hypervigilance is on such high alert or we may have insomnia or like anxiety, like settling to sleep ourselves. Mm -hmm. So some of these environmental things that you're highlighting can be really important for us to actually sleep during our windows of time to sleep, right? Absolutely. And if there's family around, again, I just really love the concept of the protected sleep room. The room where you can, I tell people like, can you go hide in the basement? Can you go (laughs) hide in the attic? Is there somewhere you can go hide during your protected sleep time so that you are able to get that deep sleep? Because, you know, we have these studies that show the anticipation of being woken up, Mm -hmm. the anticipation Mm -hmm. of not knowing that you'll be able to sleep can impede and reduce the quality of the sleep, even if you have it. And you're absolutely right. You know, for some people, co-sleeping works really well. And I, you know, I don't want to criticize or say that all people have to do it the same way. But for Mm. those people who are coming to me to say, you know, I'm not enjoying anything, or my anxiety is really getting in the way, then it's time to question how we're doing things and to say, like, is it okay to protect you more? Is it okay to protect your brain more and help it have the sleep that it needs to restore itself and heal? Mm -hmm. So I love the idea of what I call the protected sleep room and also just musical beds. You know, I, sometimes Mm. my patients are like, well, I don't want to sleep in a separate room because, you know, I don't want to become that couple that doesn't sleep together. You know, I just say, look, this is like a finite time. Like we just need to get you through, you know, six Mm -hmm. months. And I love musical beds in a family if it protects everyone's sleep because Mm -hmm. it's, it's when you protect everyone's sleep that we can be able to be at our best 
that we can parent the way that we want to parent, that we can be the partner that we want to be. So just helping people really value sleep, which is not something that we're always taught. Sometimes we think of sleep as like this renewable resource. We can always dip into it and we'll always catch up the next day. But that's the terrible thing about being postpartum is that, you know, I found being postpartum really worse than overnight call in the hospital. Overnight call in the Mm. hospital, you know, is every three days, every four days, every two days, if you're in a really difficult rotation. But then, you know, it's more predictable. You take care of a patient's needs in the middle of the night, and then you might be able to go back to sleep to get a few hours. With a baby, you go in and you think, oh, this will be a short one. But (laughs) sometimes it's not, or you don't know ahead of time. Sometimes it's so Mm -hmm. painful and so frustrating to be up in the middle of the night for, you know, a time that seems to go on and on. And also, you know, with call for doctors and hospitals, you know, the next day they're off and mothers never get that. Mm. (laughs) Mothers are on call constantly and it really wears down our brains. That's why we don't do it for physicians, you know? <laughs> right, right. It wouldn't be healthy. It wouldn't be healthy. Yeah. It wouldn't be good for yeah. our thinking. Right, right. And I think that that uncertainty and that not knowing how much sleep we're going to get, not knowing when we're going to get rest next because it relies on whether our baby sleeps or doesn't sleep, mm-hmm. that is a maddening cycle for so many people. Whereas if we center our sleep, we center mom, we come up with a plan for maternal sleep, understanding the reasons why it's important. Mm-hmm. Then we know, okay, like tonight might be a, I'm, I'm full on shift tonight because it's really difficult. But I know that come this weekend, mm-hmm. I have, you know, mother-in-law or sister-in-law mm-hmm. or friend or whoever coming to stay yeah. and I will have backup. I will have some sleep and I can look forward to that. And there seems like there's some structure and certainty to it as well. Absolutely. That's a great point. And sometimes there is a still a reluctance in patients to even try it on the weekends or try it when they do have that support. And that's just something that I really encourage them to work through. You know, I have patients mm. whose they have, you know, partners who work for the fire department or who have these long shifts where they're away and, and their work might be less predictable, where they're not able to take a shift. And I really encourage them that when those opportunities are there, take advantage of them. And the other thing that I like to really emphasize for my patients is that Allowing a family member, especially allowing a partner, allowing a father to do these night feedings and to feel capable and to grow their confidence that they know how to handle a baby at night, that they know how to soothe a baby at night, that they know how to get the baby back to sleep at night, that really allows a bonding time between the baby and that other parent that's really important And then the other benefit of that is that it allows the partner to really understand from the inside what it means to have your sleep interrupted at night, what it means Mm. to get up and do that feeding. And it's not enough to tell your partner how hard it is, kind of what you're doing for the family I mean, you can tell them and many partners are understanding and will be like, oh my gosh, you know, that's so hard. But until they've walked that mile, (laughs) there's like a little Mm -hmm. missing piece of understanding when they've dealt with that sleep deprivation, they get it. And that is 
also really important in the partner relationship that like, mm-hmm. I get it because I've been there, not just because I'm watching you and I'm like, oh yeah, it's hard. It's like, I get it because I've been there because I've done it. Mm-hmm. So there are also benefits really to allowing the other family members, especially if it's a dad or another parent to develop that capability to do a night feeding. Mm-hmm. I agree. And in retrospect, had I been specialized in what I do now and know what I know now, I would have shared my maternity leaves with my partner and I would have, you know, made space or shared up like here in Canada, we're fortunate to have like the extended leave and I would have cut that sucker in half and shared it up differently, but really went into that role at that time thinking, oh, here we go. I'm going to, I'm going to do it. And I'm going to be the best, you know, mom, I can improve this to myself. We really need more moms to support paternity leave. Yeah. Because, you know, sometimes what happens is women assume like, yeah, I know my husband has paternity leave, but you know, I don't want to give the impression that in the United States, we have adequate parental leave because we do not, and we need more. Right. (laughs) Um, Right. But even for my patients where their partner may have paternity leave, they sometimes end up shortchanging themselves because we don't have that expectation as a society that it's okay for Mm. a man to take that much time off of work or for him to do the majority of the infant care. And so sometimes what happens is you know, moms will be off leave first and they'll learn how to do everything and they'll get really capable at a skill that they didn't have, you know, they didn't have it before. They weren't professional infant caregivers before delivery, Mm -hmm. but we got a lot of experience really quick. And if they did most of it, now their partner's behind, you know, Mm -hmm. it's like if you're in medical training with a colleague and you're learning a surgical procedure and you do a hundred and your colleague does one, you're going to be much better at it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So stepping back and allowing partners to learn is sometimes a part of this that people are hesitant because they think like, oh, I just do it better. But I I have to remind my patients that, you know, you learned how to do that and you were given the opportunity to learn Mm -hmm. and it's okay to then let your partner fiddle with it and to not be great at it at first and to slowly gain competence. And that that's a really important part of letting them bond with the baby is that they get to develop their capacity to do all these things, including night feedings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like for anyone who's listening right now, as we're thinking about wrapping it up and as you maybe are like wrestling with your own internal beliefs and messages about what it means to be a good mom and that you're supposed to be the one who does it and all the things that surface in us. And I know in my perfectionism, I felt like I wanted to adhere to all of those standards so tightly. I want us to recap before signing off, like some of the whys this is really important. And I think that we've, they've been woven into our discussion today. And one of the ones off the top, Dr. Nicole, that you had highlighted is just like fundamentally for our brain health and well-being and functioning was a big one. Yeah, I call sleep like the most potent designer antidepressant that I know will work for you. Mm. And it has almost no negative side effects. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It will work for your brain. It's personally designed for you. It will help with all the things that we worry that antidepressants might cause. It will 
reduce the risk of weight gain. It will reduce the risk of having low sex drive or sexual side effects. You know, it won't cause headaches. It will improve, you know, Hmm. sleep is very potent. It can act quickly in a matter of three to four days, sometimes the next day. Hmm. I've had so many people come into my office saying, oh, I feel so much better and so different. And it's because I've started getting better sleep. And again, I'm not talking about they have to get eight hours, but that four or five hour chunk plus another couple of hours, it can be life-changing quickly, effectively, Mm -hmm. and it doesn't cause side effects, but it does take so much lifting. It takes a lot of conversations within the family and a lot of willingness to make change. Mm-hmm. And planning and mm-hmm. and hands on deck mm-hmm. to do that. But also seeing that it's not just for the mom, because as you said, partner then gets these opportunities for bonding and caring and nurturing that they otherwise would have been sheltered from. And they get to develop their skill set and their ability to read baby's cues and know how to intervene in situations. So it's not just a selfish thing either. It's something that actually benefits those that are involved as well. Absolutely. It's really in the service of the family. It's really in the service of having the mom be operating more at close to her baseline, close to her expected level of health so that she doesn't have to limp through her postpartum Mm. time. Or, you know, the worst case scenario is, you know, be hospitalized or, you know, be really ill or in danger of losing her life. Mm-hmm. So this is serious stuff. And it's not really acceptable in my mind to sit back, especially with women who already have a history of severe depression mm-hmm. or who already have a history of severe postpartum symptoms. It's not really acceptable to sit back and say, well, we know there's a high likelihood this could happen and we know when it could happen. And yeah, but we can't do anything about sleep. It's mm-hmm. no nothing, nothing to say here. So to me, that's mm-hmm. just not acceptable when we already know this is a high period of risk for any woman, which is the postpartum period, just because of the hormonal shifts. But mm-hmm. then for specific women, we go into it knowing that they might have a personal risk. And then to say like, yeah, but we can't talk about sleep when it's such a potent part of the solution. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the rare times in our life where we might see an onset of something coming ahead of time, right? Like rarely do we know maybe in adolescence or adulthood or otherwise, like when we might go into a depressive mood or or experience something that might be mood altering. We know that this is a high risk time. We can see this train coming or at least the potential for it, right? So getting all hands on deck, like we have the sleep plan that we've designed around your like lit review and the work and the the writing that you've done to help get a concrete plan in place so that we can avoid this train derailing if at all possible. Absolutely. Right? So yeah, and we've got that free download and we'll link it. It's called a sleep plan for mom and we'll link it in our show notes and make it available. It's all over our website. But also for those who'd like to be in contact with you, learn more from you, read more from you, where can they find you? Where are you hanging out online? That's a great question. I don't have a huge online presence, but I would welcome people to email me at my University of Maryland email address. Yeah. It's nlystico at som.umaryland.edu. 
And I wanted to maybe make one more point if we have time, because this is something that mm-hmm. we have, we didn't actually have time to talk about, but it's how do you space out pumping and breastfeeding if you were mm-hmm. going to try to have a longer stretch of sleep? So this is like a little specific wrinkle where, you know, you've just given birth, you know, the first three weeks, just cope. Like, don't worry about mm. a sleep plan, just cope. But then around week three or four, I do start saying, let's talk about a sleep plan. If at that point, you know, you're breastfeeding, you may be waking up every two and a half to three hours needing to breastfeed or needing to pump. And Hmm. sometimes that's the sticking point that gets in the way for moms is because they say, well, look, I'm going to be up at midnight anyway. I have to pump or I have to feed. I have to empty my breasts. Why wake up my partner? Why don't I just take that feeding? Hmm. And what I actually recommend for people is that they use that time to gradually space out pumping. They might need to pump at midnight for like three nights and then see if now if you can pump at 1230. Let your partner do that midnight feeding. See if you can pump at 1230 for three nights. See if you can pump at 1 a.m. for three nights. See if you can pump at 1.30. And then, you know, within a one to two week period, you've spaced it out. Your milk supply is in sync with you having that protected sleep chunk. And you now can feed your baby at 2 a.m. or whenever they wake next. Mm -hmm. It is something that you have to think about and that you might have to plan for because it takes like a week or two of adjusting. It doesn't mean that we throw out a sleep plan or the possibility of it. It means that we're intentional and work together to prioritize sleep and make it work. And I think it's a really valid point that it may not go well the first time around. Like it might take some trial and error to find maybe a timeline that works or the shift that works or like it's not like oh we're going to try this once and prioritize it it's going to magically go well and all of a sudden you know we're magically sleeping but if there is a commitment there as a family to prioritize maternal sleep and both parents sleep in this like shift work mentality then we're going to be committed to the goal of figuring it out again and doing it again next time. Absolutely. I tell people the principles because it doesn't mean that my recipe is going to work for your family. But if you have the principles and you know how important sleep is, you can usually come up with a plan that can make it better and make it happen in more of these important chunks that our brains really Mm -hmm. need. If you're breastfeeding, you know, around the clock and all day long, except for you give four ounces of formula. And with that four ounces of formula, you get four to five hours of sleep. You know, that might be an acceptable trade-off just because you're using a little bit of formula to supplement doesn't mean that you're not still getting the benefits of breastfeeding. You know, I want families to do what works for them. And I don't want Mm -hmm. mothers to feel like they have no choice. Mm Mm-hmm. And that flexibility in our thinking around feeding, as you highlight, is something that when we are anxious or when we are perfectionist or when we're just so desperately wanting to do it like right, air quotes, you know, we cling to things like exclusively breastfeeding as these titles or goals that we're trying to accomplish. And I know like I went through this, I was in this same experience as well. So like it feels like a failure to even contemplate a bottle of formula in some way. But if we are prioritizing your mental health and if we are defining success by mom being well and baby being well and healthy, 
how we get there looks different. So like for me, adhering to this perfectionist ideal of exclusively breastfeeding as a indicator of success wore me into the ground and my mental well-being into the ground. And that's not how I define success. Like mom needs to be healthy and well. Like if I'm suffering and not doing well, but I'm holding on so tightly to this like exclusively breastfed title, then we're not adjusting well. And then we're also like not feeling joy in our role. Like we're feeling like lots of burnout and other feelings as well. So allowing for some flexibility in our thinking around feeding is really, really important. Yeah. And it's such a great point because what's best for babies really is having a mom who's available to them. You know, having a mom who is able to experience joy when the baby babbles or the baby smiles. So focusing on that larger picture and understanding that it's okay if I need a little bit of formula and a lot of sleep protection to get there because it's not like a selfish thing that I'm doing for myself. It's so that I can be with my baby. And that's what babies need too. Mm -hmm. I agree. And I thank you again for taking the time to be here today. We've got a free resource for moms, a plan that they can fill out and work through based on the readings that I've done from your work and here to really spread the message that it is important, necessary, healthy, to prioritize and center mom's sleep. So thank you so much for joining us and being here. Wasn't that such a great conversation with Dr. Nicole? She is really onto something. The more we can shift our focus from trying to control baby sleep onto planning for maternal sleep in the postpartum period and coming around new parents and supporting them and being able to get the rest and sleep they need, to go the long distance, to go the long journey of parenthood, the better the outcomes will be for our new parents adjusting in the postpartum period. If you haven't had an intentional conversation about sleep, or you haven't come up with a plan for your own sleep during pregnancy or in the postpartum period, I encourage you to go and download our free resource that will walk you through planning to get some sleep in the postpartum period. Head to happyasamother.co slash sleep. That's happyasamother.co slash sleep. I'll see you right back here, same time, same place next week, where I am being joined by reproductive psychiatrist and therapist, Dr. Sarah Oreck. Did you feel worried and anxious when you were pregnant? Did you feel full of fear and anxiety in the postpartum period and weren't sure if this is just what motherhood is? Dr. Sarah is joining the show to help us understand perinatal anxiety, which is both in pregnancy and the postpartum period, to help us know what is normal or not and how to seek support. I'll see you right back here next week. I can't even begin to tell you how happy and honored I am that you choose to spend your time here with me each week. If you're looking for the resources or links from today's show, or you need a refresh on anything we've talked about, visit our show notes. You can find the link in the episode description, or you can head directly to happyasamother.co slash podcast. To join the Happy as a Mother VIP list and be the first one to know about new episode drops, insider info, or freebies, head to happyasamother.co slash newsletter. Until next episode, mama, I want you to know, keep showing up. You're doing an amazing job.